Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, maybe you have them out already. Why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Passage that uh, Dan read for us this morning, Genesis chapter 3, is where we are going to be in our sermon, simply entitled The Blame Game. The Blame Game. Genesis chapter 3, we'll focus our efforts on uh, verses 1 through 13. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. Uh, As you're flipping there, I want to begin with a quick story. I ran across an article this week uh, that uh, was speaking of some very real excuses that people submitted after having some accidents uh, to their car insurance. And so uh, I just want to read uh, some of these to you as we begin to think about uh, giving excuses in the blame game. One person writes uh, to his insurance company, Uh, I was going to work at 7 a.m. this morning, and I drove out of my drive straight into a bus. And then he commented, the bus was five minutes early. Another wrote, I I didn't think that the speed limit applied after midnight. Don't try that one. Uh, Another man wrote, I I pulled away from the side of the road. I I glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment careful with that one. Uh, another man wrote, in, in, in an attempt to, to kill a fly in my, in my car, I drove into a telephone pole. Might be easier ways to kill a fly in the car, right? Another a woman wrote, I thought my window was down, but I found out that it was up when I put my head through it. One way to find out your window is up. Uh, this is my, probably my favorite one. One, one man wrote, The indirect cause of the accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. Road rage, right? Well, while we hopefully will never give excuses like these to our insurance company, I wonder if we just took a moment and take a look at our own inner monologue or maybe outer monologue that we might find ourselves saying some very similar things both to God and others as we try to explain away our sin struggles. We might find ourselves saying something like, I, God, I wouldn't be so angry if my spouse wouldn't treat me that way. Or we might say something, well, the reason why I treat my boss and talk about him or her that way is, gosh, they're such a jerk, right? They would only be respectful, then I would treat them with respect. Or how about this one? If my kids were just better behaved, if they were more obedient, then I I just wouldn't yell at them like I do. And on and on and on the blame game goes. Friends, I just want us to pause at the outset of this sermon and the sermon series that we'll be in for the next several weeks. And I want us to ask ourselves a couple questions. These questions will be repeated and reiterated as we go throughout the sermon series. But I want for them to be in the, the, the forefront of our minds from the beginning. The first question is simply this. What excuses am I making before God and others? What type of excuses am I giving either to God or to other people? And the second related question is this. More specific to this morning, this morning, am I blaming anybody else? Am I blaming somebody else for my sins or my struggles or my problems? Am I looking to pass the blame? Am I playing the blame game for that which I should be taking responsibility for in my spiritual life? Well, well, friends, the blame game is really not new to humanity. It's not new to human experience. In fact, when you uh, open the Bible and you read through chapters 1 and 2, and then finally you get to chapters 
chapter 3, you only get, it only takes three chapters in the Bible before we see the blame game begin with our, our great ancestors, Adam and Eve. And so it's to chapter 3 of Genesis into the account of the temptation and the fall and the consequences of that fall in Genesis chapter 3 that we see um, Adam and Eve, our, uh, the first human beings, begin to play the blame game. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll work our way through the text, specifically verses 1 through 7, where we will see um, the evil, that is the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve. We will see the evil come into existence in, in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And then we'll see the excuse. We'll see Adam and Eve point the finger at each other, at God, at the serpent in verses 8 through 13. So we'll take a look at the evil in verses 1 through 7, and then the, the excuse, or the excuse is more, more like it, in verses 8 through 13. So let's open our text and take a look, starting in verse 1. The blame shifting begins uh, with the first blatant sin in human history. It's recorded for us in verses 1 through 7, and uh, there in verses 1 through 5, we begin with the temptation of mankind, right? So we see the temptation uh, to evil in verses 1 through 5. Let's read that section together. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the scene opens here in Genesis chapter 3. Of course, it follows on the heels of Genesis 1 and 2, where we see this great twofold creation account. We see in Genesis 1, uh, the overview, God creates everything uh, in the world, including the pinnacle of creation, mankind. Uh, And then in chapter 2, we get more details. Um, And so we get 1 and 2, and everything is, what's the key word in Genesis 1? Good. Everything is good, right? And now we get to Genesis chapter 3, and there is a new character that comes on the scene. The text calls him simply the serpent. And I think we see three quick things about the serpent here. First of all, we uh, learn that uh, he was more crafty, the NIV says, cunning. Your translation may say more crafty, more cunning than any of the other wild animals. And so from the beginning of this account, we see uh, that there's a serpent, and we see that the serpent is after something. It's kind of the idea of the word translated cunning, that, that, that the, the serpent is wise, but is using that wisdom to pursue his own end. And what we see shortly is that his goal is to destroy mankind, to destroy the pinnacle of God's creation. So he's after something. Second, we learn that this serpent, the Lord God, had made. In other words, this entity, this serpent, is is under the dominion and authority, the sovereignty of the creator God. And third, it's just kind of it doesn't strike us as odd anymore, most likely, because we've heard this story again and again. But um, we learn something about this, this animal. What's odd about this animal? Dogs, right? It's a talking animal. 
I don't know about you, but I've not seen any talking animals lately. Um, but this animal speaks. This is Narnia-type stuff. And it's an indicator at the beginning of this story that this snake is no mere snake, right? This is not just your normal, average, run-of-the-mill um, uh, snake. This, this is something greater. This animal talks. And when we begin to see what this animal says to our great ancestors, uh, it's, it's not good at all. We see this snake, which we know from later revelation, is actually Satan himself tempting mankind. And so we, we can't miss the contrast here in the flow of Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 2, who does the talking? God, for the most part. God speaks, and there's creation, and there's life, and there's goodness, and there's order. But now we come to Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 3. And, and the snake, the serpent, uh, Satan speaks, and all he brings about is death and chaos in the created order. In verses 1 through 5, we see what the serpent has to say. We won't rehash the details, but two things really stand, uh, stands out to me about what the serpent says, right? First of all, we see that, that the serpent wants to plant seeds of doubt about the goodness of God, doesn't he? He, he comes to Eve, and he plants these, these doubts. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, he twists God's words to make God seem much more restrictive than what God actually was to humankind. And, 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 and he suggests to Eve that God really isn't in it for you. He doesn't really care about what's best for you. God is withholding something from you by saying to you, don't eat from this tree. The central theme in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is good and everything he makes is good and that he cares and provides for his, his creatures. But here Satan challenges that. Is God really good? Look what he's restricting from you. And not only does he plant seeds of doubt about the goodness of God and the goodness of God's word. But secondly, he just downright denies God's word, doesn't he? He goes from twisting it to outright lying about it. What, what is the lie that he fed to Eve and Adam, as we'll see here shortly? You will not certainly die, right? What had God said to them? You eat from this tree that I prohibited from you, and what will happen? Death will enter into your experience and all of creation. And here, uh, the, the, the Satan says, that is just not true. It is certainly not true. You will not die. Friends, Satan wants us to believe that there is no penalty, that there are no consequences for our sin. He wants us to believe that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, and there is just no consequences for disobeying God. It's the chief lie. It's the first lie. And that allure boy, does it continue today? It does. It still continues today as Satan whispers his lies into our ears. So there's the temptation in 1 through 5, and then there's the tasting of evil, isn't there, in verses 6 and 7. Take a look with me in your text. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 7. 
then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And that's the fall of mankind. So we see that the fruit was tempting in a lot of ways to Adam and to Eve, here specifically to Eve. It was tempting physically, right? It it looked good. It was tempting uh, aesthetically. It was pleasing to the eye. It was tempting intellectually. I I could maybe be like God if I eat this fruit. And so she took it and she ate it. And then we learn something that we weren't told before. Was she alone here? Nope, she wasn't alone. Where was her husband? Apparently, her husband was right there next to her the entirety of the time. She gave some to her husband who was with her. And then Adam takes a bite and disobeys God. That is telling here, friends. What was Eve meant to be back in Genesis chapter 2? She was meant to be Adam's helper, right? And uh, here she helps him, in a sense, disobey God. But Adam was created as... As the leader, he was created first and called to pass on the uh, requirements from God. What we're told in Genesis 2 is that God gave the prohibitions to Adam. And then, theoretically, Adam was to give that to Eve. And he did, at least we, we see in the text. But, but what's going on here? The Satan is attacking the created order. He's saying, this is how God has ordered things, and I am going to reverse that. And all the while, Adam sits by, passively, sees this happen, doesn't do anything about it, and then follows his wife into sin, willingly. He was not duped. He willingly disobeyed God's call. This is, I think, uh, an interesting point. Husbands and, and fathers, this struck me this week. If if we choose not to lead our families the way God calls us to, then there's a good chance that Satan is going to try to. It's exactly what we see happening here. We see the immediate results that follow, right? Their eyes are opened. That's what, that's what Satan had promised. You see the irony? He says, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be like God. And in a sense, that was true, but not in the way that he had promised them. Their eyes indeed were opened. Now they realized what sin was, not just in theory, but what? in experience. They knew what it was to perpetrate evil. They experienced it. Their eyes were opened. And not only that, but we see that they realized that they were naked. Genesis chapter 2 says that the man and the woman, that they were naked together and there was no shame, right? Um, But here in Genesis 3, sin enters into the equation. And friends, sin always leads to shame. Right? It always does. We disobey God and we realize that we do it and it leads to shame. And what did they try to do? Did they try to remedy their situation? Of course they did. That's, that's what they tried to do. They, they realized it and so they, they do this patchwork kind of a fig covering for themselves. One of my seminary professors said of this verse, and I, and I recall it, he says, sin always leads to exposure what happened here, right? Sin in our lives, it always leads to exposure, and then exposure always leads to cover up. Isn't that true in our life? It happened to Adam, it happened to Eve, it happens to us. It's true in their lives, and it's true of ours. And part of that cover up, as we're going to see here in just a moment, 
was not only did they try to cover themselves physically to hide from their shame, but they, they tried to cover them, their shame, their sin before a holy God. And that led them to play the blame game, as we'll see momentarily. But as we come to the conclusion of verses 1 through 7, I, I just want us to see about, oh, five or six lessons, I think, that we can see from this account. There are so many things to be learned, but I think we can learn a few things about about Satan's schemes and his workings, and then how we can prepare ourselves for that. So the first thing that I think we see here is, is that satanic temptation often and, and may come in disguise. It may come in disguise. So be on your guard. How did temptation come for Adam and Eve in the garden? It came in the form of a slick-speaking snake, right? Kind of slick snake. Friends, temptation often comes in disguise for us as well. It may come in unexpected ways. It might look like a growing obsession with a hobby or an activity or a sports team. It may, it may come in the form of, a, of an inordinate desire for something. Maybe, maybe it's furniture or clothing or, or housing or jewelry, some possession. It's taking a grip of your life. It may look like an innocent Facebook message from an old friend of the opposite sex. It might look like a prescription pill bottle or even the good old glass kind. It can be sneaky in our lives, just like Satan was in theirs. So be on guard. Number two, Satan often begins, often begins his temptation by getting us to doubt the goodness of God. Friends, I think this is really key for us. That's how he began with our Uh, our forefathers. So let me ask you, do you really believe that God in his commandments, in his prohibitions, when he says don't do this, and when he says do, do that, that that is actually for your good? Do you believe that when God says stay away from this, stay away from this action, stay away from this attitude, stay away from this situation, that he is not trying to keep something from you. He's trying to keep you from something from something that is damaging and harmful from you. Because if we begin to doubt God's goodness and his words, in his prohibitions and in his commandments, then we begin to think, God, I don't know, that just seems really hard. I think you're really keeping something from me. God, you really don't have my interest in mind. That's where he begins. Maybe you're there today. If you are, then believe God. Believe that he is good. He wants good for you. Number three, Satan will twist God's word and he will deny God's word. We see that he does both in the temptation of Adam and Eve. He twists it and then he outright denies it. And so what should we do? We should be in the word, right? How will we know if Satan is twisting God's word? How will we know if he's outright denying the word? If we don't know the word ourselves? Number four. Satan wants us to believe there are no consequences for our sin. We talked about that. Satan wants us to believe that there are no consequences to our actions, to our sin. And to that, I simply say, be realistic, right? There is cause and effect. There are consequences for what we do when we break God's divine laws. Number five, and this one I think is most pertinent, Satan often will attack the family structure. He will attack the family structure. So beware. I just think it's an interesting observation that, that um, Satan didn't go to Adam when it was just Adam. 
there was Adam and God made Eve and he brought the first family unit together in, in the marriage covenant, didn't he? Back in Genesis 2. And then Satan attacks. He attacked the family unit, God's created order. See, God has created marriage and family as a, as a chief instrument for propagating his glory and his message. And so Satan wants to destroy that. Friends, don't be fooled. Satan wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your parenting. He wants to destroy your children. Satan is a destroyer. He's a deceiver. That's what he wants to do. And here we see that the first family unit, the first marriage was attacked. And so we need to beware, be on guard of what he's doing. I think he takes particular devilish delight in destroying this great entity that God has created. So beware in your marriage for the schemes of Satan. Beware in your, in your parenting for the schemes of Satan. Beware of what the evil one may be seeking to do in your children's lives. Well, we've seen the evil act in verses 1 through 7. Finally, we move on to verses 8 through 13 where we see the excuses. The blame game begins in verses 8 through 13. Ran across a, uh, an interesting story many years ago, back in 2004. A true story of, of a young man, a 22 year old man, who robbed a Chevron station in the Seattle Tacoma area. And uh, he robbed the, the station, and then he began what turned out to be a, a, a long police chase. And there were several cars called out, and they were chasing uh, this particular robber and the passenger. They were, they were in a red Honda, and they were uh, in hot pursuit. But as it turned out, the roads uh, around the area of Puget Sound are, are very winding, and it was dark. And so as the story goes, the twists and turns uh, allowed the, the, the robbers to get away, uh, at least momentarily. So they had kind of ditched the cops, but in doing so, they were lost. They didn't know where they were. And so uh, they decided to stop at a gas station and ask for help. And so they pulled the red uh, Honda into the Chevron station. And they, they said, hey, can you, can you help us get to Seattle? We're going to Seattle, unaware that it was the very same gas station that they had robbed. And, of course, they called the police, and they were apprehended shortly thereafter. You know, friends, what transpires next in Genesis chapter 3 is, is sort of a, a similar tale of, of fugitives on the run. Fugitives on the run, although the fugitives in our story, unlike the ones in that story, they have no chance of escape. God is the one on their heels. But unlike the police, in a sense, God is pursuing them for their good. He wants to restore the broken relationship that has transpired. So in Genesis 3, the account picks up as we see God seeking out his lost image bearers. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord called, uh, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? We'll stop the account there. What is uh, so very telling is that instead of uh, walking with God in the garden as they once had in the cool of the day, enjoying what seemed to be a regular time of fellowship with God, now they hear uh, the Lord walking into the garden as they once did, and instead of running to him, what do they do? They run away from him. They hide. 
Sin has devastated their once perfect relationship, not just with them, but from, uh, with every human being that would follow. And God had, had promised them sin would bring death. Chapter 2, sin brings death. And in one sense, it had, hadn't it? I mean, they hadn't died physically, not yet, but death was a very real part of their experience. They had died spiritually, right? They were separated, which is the kind of core idea of what death is. There is a separation there. And they were separated from God. But what is really cool about this account is that God takes the initiative, doesn't he? I mean, they run away from him, and what does God do? He runs towards them. He seeks to reestablish a healed relationship, and it begins by getting them to admit what they had done. And so God calls to the man first, and that's telling, isn't it? Because who sinned first, in theory? Eve, right? She, she ate first, and then him. But God calls to the man. He says, Adam, where are you? I've always thought that was funny, right? We believe in the Bible that God is omniscient, that he knows all things, right? And so why then does God say, Adam, where are you? You think God needed to know where Adam was? No. Who needed to know where Adam was? Adam needed to know where Adam was. Not physically, spiritually, right? He's calling him out. He's exposing his sin. The man responds in verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Here's the irony. Are they completely naked now? Not completely, because what had they done? You know, they took a little fig here, a little fig leaf there, sew it together, and voila, right? You got yourself a wardrobe. So they weren't completely naked, but Adam, what does he say? I was afraid because I was naked. In a sense, he still feels naked. I don't think he's talking about spiritual nakedness here, friends. He, he is exposed, right? So what does God want? He, want Adam, he wants Adam to take responsibility for his actions. He seeks after a confession. And this is all of God's grace, right? God is after them, and he's being good to them. And in, in verse 11, we see this, and he said, God responds, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So in these two questions, God is making it crystal clear. He, he, he knows the answer, just like before, right? He wants Adam to realize that the state that he was in was due to his failure to obey God, due to his sin. And so now it comes to it, right? This is, at least in my mind, a, somewhat of a culmination of the, past, of the passage because God explicitly asks him, have you eaten, right? Did you disobey? It's plain and simple, right? And uh, so we come to it, right? Here we are. It's the moment we've been waiting for. It's the moment that Adam mans up. He takes responsibility. He says, yes, I was passive. I should have stepped in. It's the moment where he says, yes, I did what, what, what was wrong. I rebelled against you. I ate the fruit. And please, God, forgive me. Is that what happens? Nope. The blame game begins, does it not? It begins. What we hear is the all too familiar sound from our own experience, the personal response to sin, blaming, blaming, blaming. Stories told, a fictitious story of a woman walking along the beach and she stumbles upon a, a genie's lamp, you know, like the one in Aladdin. 
And so she rubs it, and the genie pops out. I don't know if it sounds like Robin Williams or not, but there's the genie. And uh, she says, oh, I get, great, I know the story. I got three wishes, right? And the genie said, well, not exactly. Due to inflation and downsizing and global competition, I'm, I can really only give you one. And she says, okay, great, I know what it is. He says, shoot, I want peace in the Middle East. Peace in the Middle East. And so she says, look at this map. These countries right here, look at it, genie. They're always fighting with each other. And so the, green, the genie, he grabs the map and he looks at it and he says, lady, these countries, these countries, these people, they've been at it for thousands of years. I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Make another wish. Disappointed, she thought about it. She said, well, I mean, I'm, watching, I'm walking along the beach alone, so, and I've never really been able to find the right guy. You know, the one that's considerate and he's fun and he cooks and he helps with the house cleaning. He's romantic, and he gets along with my family, and he loves my dogs, and he doesn't watch sports all the time, and he's absolutely faithful to me. That's what I want, Jeannie, the perfect husband. And the genie lets out a long sigh, and he says, mm, let me see that map again. <laughs> see, Adam was created, and Eve was created, and they had, if you will, a perfect marriage, a, a marriage where sin did not exist. Sounds pretty good to me. But that state is long gone, right? And here Adam, oh, good old Adam, he throws his wife under the bus. Verse 12, the man said, so this is his response, did you do it? And this is what he says, the woman, first two words, right? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Golly, blame game begins. God Her fault, her fault. She ate the fruit. It was her. I was just doing what she told me to do. Haven't you heard the slogan, God, happy wife, happy life, right? Okay. And I just, I took it, you know. He points the finger that way. But it's interesting because really, which direction is he pointing the finger? Right? That's what he's doing. Did you catch it? The man said, the woman you put here with me, right? So, Um, He blames his wife, yes, but ultimately he blames God. It's been said to err is human. To blame it on others and upon God is more human. And that's exactly what we see Adam doing here. Um, Eve is not much better. Verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave from the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And what does Eve say? Eve. What does she say? Well, she goes on to say, Uh, It's a serpent, right? She's like, "Uh, well, let's see. He blamed me, so who am I going to blame? The serpent, right? And so the finger pointing continues. Wow, it continues. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And it's simply a broken record of blame and excuse. So we need to circle back to our original question then as we wrap up. We we see that uh, the blame game is not new. Uh, our, our, our ancestors did it. Adam and Eve did it. And friends, we follow suit, don't we? Am I blaming anyone other than myself for my sins, my struggles, my problems? What excuses are we laying before a holy God? What, what direction are you pointing? Are you pointing the direction of your wife? The direction of your husband? We point the direction of our kids? We point the direction of our coworker. We point the direction of our boss. Do we point the direction of our mother-in-law or father-in-law or cousin or aunt 
or friend or neighbor, or we may even point that direction, right? If we're honest. And so, friends, are we also playing the blame game? We all do, and we all have. But as we close, I want us to see something that uh, is, is really marvelous about chapter 3. Um, and it's, it's that the grace of God is really um, permeating this chapter. I mean, it's a negative chapter, there's no doubt. But the grace of God permeates the account of the fall. Let me just point out a few instances. We've seen one already. Adam and Eve sin, we sin too, and how does God respond? He pursues the lost sinner, does he not? God pursues sinners. Wonderful. He pursues us, even though we don't deserve it. He pursues uh, us to fix the broken relationship that we broke. He didn't break it. We broke it. And yet he, in his grace, pursues guilty sinners. And friends, praise be to God, he still does today. Amen? Amen. Thank you. He still does today. Second, we see this wonderful promise in Genesis 3.15. You can look there if you want. It's not on the screen, but in the Bible there, in in 3.15, we get this wonderful promise of one who would come. He would be born of the seed of Eve, a a, a human being, and that, that Satan, the serpent, would strike his heel, that there would be enmity between these two Uh, these two entities between this man who would come and between the evil one and that the evil one would seek to strike him but would only get his heel and that this one would do what to the head of the serpent? Remember? Stomp on it, right? He would would stomp that that, that serpent to death. And of course, we know that this is a picture of, 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 of Jesus, that there would be one to come who would fix what we messed up in Genesis chapter 3. And we know that Jesus is that one. But friends, the grace of God, we see it even more in this chapter. Because Maybe you didn't notice it, but um, in the passage that Dan read, um, they're naked, they, they make for them, themselves these, these fig leaves covers. Um, and then God does what? What does he do? He makes their own, a covering for them, right? And how does he do that? He kills animals. He He sacrifices something in their place through the shedding of blood so that they can be covered. Boy, that sounds like somebody else I know, doesn't it? Sounds like one who would come who would be the very Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for us, whose blood would be shed so that we, in a sense, the Bible says, can be covered, not with animal skins, but with the precious righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ. Isn't that the gift of God that he offers to us through faith? And so all throughout this account of sin and folly and blame, we see God pursuing and covering and being so gracious to his people. And so friends, I want to close with this. God is gracious to those who blame others for their sins. He is gracious He's gracious to Adam, he's gracious to to Eve, and he's gracious to us. He sent his very son to pay for the very act of our blaming other people, and even him, for our sins. If we would simply receive that covering of the perfect obedience and righteousness and life of Jesus, can cover us, and we can be forgiven of our sins and deemed holy and just and good and right in God's eyes if we receive that covering. But friends, It's a gift, and we have to receive it. 
Just like Adam and Eve had to receive the covering that God had provided for them, we have to receive that gift. And so we're going to pray right now and we'll be done. But if you have never received that gift of the precious blood and covering of the life of Jesus, then you can pray with me and you can receive that type of covering. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be uh, here together and to be in your word. Father, we all confess that we are blame shifters and that we play the blame game and that we give excuses for our sin before you. And we recognize that we, like Adam and Eve, point the finger in all sorts of directions, even at you, but we should be pointing the finger towards us. And so we ask for forgiveness when we do that and ask that you would make us uh, responsible for our own sin, recognizing that if we have trusted in Jesus and in Jesus alone, that even that very sin is covered by the blood of the Lamb. And if you have been here uh, and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, if you have not received this grace, this gracious gift of eternal life and salvation and the the forgiveness of sins, the, the covering that Jesus offers, then even now, would you pray with me? Dear God, I recognize that I, like Adam and Eve, have sinned against you and that I am guilty before you and that I am full of shame and guilt. But you, in your love, pursued me. You have sent your very Son, who is God incarnate, to be the sacrificial lamb, the offering whose blood covers my sins and whose resurrection gives me new and eternal life. And I receive that gift, that covering, even now by faith in Jesus' name. And if you have just prayed that, we invite you to come and share with a friend, talk to an elder, talk to me. We can talk about new life in Christ. Father, thank you for the morning. Go with us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people together said, Amen. See you next week, guys.